Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. It is that time again. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, John C. Fremont and Jesse Benton Fremont, arguably the first power couple in California. They are the subject of a new book by NPR's Steve Inskeep. Uh, it's called Imperfect Union. And we're going to talk to the co-host of Morning Edition in just a second. We are indeed. Uh, quite an amazing story. He was one of California's first U.S. senators, the first Republican nominee for president. It wasn't Abe Lincoln. No, it was John Fremont. And uh, she, she, Jesse, was basically his political advisor. They'd be great guests, Marisa. But, <laughs> but they've been dead. dead for about a decade. Uh, a decade, a century. I mean, a century and a decade. <laughs> and, a decade. and a couple decades. Yeah, I would have picked her because I'm very fascinated. But we will get into all of that. Let's stay in the present day for a moment, okay, Scott, sure. shall we? Yeah, let's do that. So there was a PPIC poll. We're getting close to the Iowa caucus. It's hard to believe we've been talking about this for so like close. two years. And it's just a few weeks away now. And yet people still don't know who they're voting for. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it could go any any dire- any of several directions. This PPIC poll shows that here in California, likely Democratic voters, uh, 27 percent prefer Bernie Sanders, followed by Biden at 24 and Warren at 23. That's like a 10 point jump for Bernie since the in last, this poll uh, in this poll from yeah. the last one just uh, just a month ago. So he clearly is uh, getting some traction in big numbers, but still largely within the margin of error for these top candidates. And if you look at the sort of cumulative polls in California, it's kind of been, you know, this like shuffling of the deck over and over again. I do think what happens in these early states will impact people because, you know, just talking to folks in my life, I think that there's still a sense. First of all, Californians, I don't think have fully caught on to the idea yet that we are part of Super Tuesday and we could actually impact this primary. Well, they think everything about California is super. Well, Maybe. Or they're just so dragged down from so many years of not mattering in presidential contests. Well, and I think, too, that people are going to hold on to their ballots, even people voting by mm-hmm. mail. They're not going to they're going to wait, you know, to see make sure the candidate they like is still in it. You know, yeah. it, somebody could drop out or, you know, clearly not be, you know, in a position to get the nomination. People, for some reason, want to vote for the winner, you know, I, I know it's uh, funny. as opposed to the is person it, right. they really like sometimes. 
I was actually really interested in some other stuff in this poll, um, including the fact that 23% of California voters polled or likely voters in this now say that homelessness is a top issue. Another 11% say housing. Not even making the top five or six was health care, which was such a huge thing just, you know, in yeah. 2018 in that election. Um, and then really interesting to me is how much bipartisan support in California there actually are for immigrants for the DACA program, yeah. but also for for a pathway for undocumented folks to stay here legally. That is something that Republicans, independents, and Democrats are all on board with, except for when it comes to the border wall. Yeah. Well, you know, that is an argument we had in, with Proposition you know, 187, you know, in 1994. And I think it's been resolved. People have come to believe that immigrants are a net plus for California. And, you know, that's kind of we've moved on in a way from that. It issue. just it, To me, that's just so interesting because it raises this question about not just the primary, but November, when you as a national candidate are talking to California voters who are so worried about, you know, the cost of housing here, homelessness. Um, the two big issues that Democrats and Republicans ran on, right, health care and immigration in the last several cycles are not as big of a sort of divide here. So I don't know. It's just going to be interesting to see that messaging play out. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, people obviously are concerned about the cost of living, that, housing especially, and homelessness because they confront it, especially if they live in a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles or San Diego, for that matter. But, you know, healthcare really is a fundamental issue for people. It's a, one of those kitchen table issues. And even if in a poll like this, they don't necessarily list it as their top issue, you know, if candidates are talking about it, it gonna, becomes the top they're going to be listening. Totally. Yeah. And I think homelessness has been in the news a lot, uh, especially with the governor's budget, you know, and he's going on this tour this week, the tour this yeah. week, reinforcing the one point four billion dollars in his budget. Uh, so good um, news for him in this poll, we should note, I he, thought. I mean, yeah. you know, his approval rating ticks slightly up. It's around 51 percent. Um, it obviously is stronger among Democrats and to some extent independents. But he's. Better than the legislature, not, you know. Oh, the it, legislature's up there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in general, I think that the, the it, this was a more optimistic electorate and yes than and, I thought. I mean, well, yes and no, because 50% <laughs> say California's going in the right direction. 46% say it's not. So, you know, I think there's, there is there is that, I think maybe that's a reflection in part of the huge differences in income and wealth in California. And political leanings. And political leanings, for sure. Uh, but certainly we're not a 50-50 state, you know, when it comes to Republican Democrats. Yeah. So. Also not even mention wildfires and utilities. So, yeah. you know, I think some of this has to do with the news cycle and how quickly we get sidetracked. But we're going to just go back in history now. Yeah, we're going to go back uh, to the 1800s. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, NPR's Steve Inskeep joins us to talk about his new book about Jesse and John Fremont. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're delighted to have a man with us whose voice may often be the very first one you hear in the morning. He's one of the co-hosts of Morning Edition and a longtime NPR reporter as well, Steve Inskeep. Steve, welcome to The Breakdown. Hi there, guys. Delighted to be here. Wow. Your voice is in my ear. Oh, Just like okay. it normally is. No. Um, well, Steve, we're... We'd be happy to talk to you anytime, but we were Thank really you. excited when we found out that you have written this book. It's called Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Help Cause the Civil War. Um, a lot there. Yeah. I just have to say, I was personally really excited because I came back from summer vacation last year, mm-hmm. having driven through the Sutter Buttes and other areas, oh, and great. went down a Google rabbit hole with my husband about the Fremonts, who were... Super fascinating. Yeah. There's so much there. They had these giant lives. They they, they lived very long lives. They were involved in multiple major parts of 19th century American history, and they were incredibly famous at the time, which is why their name is on everything. Well, in fact, Fremont Street is a block away from where you may know, on Beale Street, which is, he's also in your book. But how How did did it get your attention? Yeah. Yeah. How did you come to this? Uh, I first learned of the Fremonts as a kid. Uh, my parents were the kind of people who would like buy lots of books. There were lots of books in the house. They were teachers, and they got me those Time Life books, you mm-hmm. know, of the Old West. And you grew up in Indiana. I right? grew up in Indiana. Yeah, yeah, which was uh, the Old West at one time. But in <laughs> any case, uh, the, I, I just saw their names and sort of remembered them. And because I would keep seeing them again and again and again, you read about the Civil War, they turn up. Uh, you read about other parts of American history, they turn up. But I didn't think seriously about them. Uh, until I was exploring Manifest Destiny, westward expansion. How did we end up with, you know, California, among other things, as part of the United States? And they just became more and more fascinating to me. They had been mentioned in so many history books, but they're not really deeply explored that often. Why do you think that is? Like, There are a couple of reasons. Uh, I think part of it is that um, their lives got worse. I I focus in this book on the 1840s and 50s when they were on the rise, when Fremont was exploring the West, when he was becoming a huge celebrity, when his wife was helping him become a celebrity and then becoming famous herself. But then came the Civil War. They had a bad Civil War. They argued with... Who didn't? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) But they argued with Abraham Lincoln. Nobody has ever had a good historical Even though they were... Abolition. I mean, they, 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 were, they were they were against slavery, uh, and their argument in the Civil War was about how quickly slaves should be free. And, and before he wanted, that, he was the first Republican nominated. He was for the president. first Republican nominated. Nin- for president. Yeah, do you want to just deal. like give us the thirty-second recap of their lives, just for people who are not familiar? Take a minute. John, Take a minute. <laughs> John Charles Fremont was the son of an immigrant who became a U.S. Army officer who was assigned to go out uh, on expeditions to map the American West. Not just to explore things, he really didn't discover that much that was new, but to publicize the West, to entice settlers to come out and take it over. And 
In making the West more famous, so to speak, he made himself more famous. He'd come back and write best-selling accounts of his adventures, and he wrote them with his wife, Jessie Benton Fremont, the daughter of a senator who would be his secretary, his editor, sometimes his ghostwriter, his a- political, and political advisor, and political operator, and yeah, even a manager of his presidential campaign. And she, I mean, what really strikes me about, I mean, both of them, but particularly Jessie Fremont, is how she seemed to understand, you know, at, at a time when the Morse code was being invented and newspapers were just sort of spreading the power of narrative and yeah. how the you know to take these stories that were generally kind of dry accounts of these expeditions and to turn them into something really powerful. Yeah, and they would tell them in a chronological narrative and it's all from John Fremont's point of view, whatever he saw as he saw it, which makes you feel like you're in a novel when you read his reports. And I love that you say the power of narrative because both of them understood that there were ways to promote his narrative as a great American explorer. He, in 1842, climbed a very high mountain in what is now Wyoming and decided without any evidence at all that it must just be the highest mountain in all of North America. And that was something, a claim that he sort of made in one of his reports and people picked it up and he became the guy who'd climbed the highest point in the (laughs) Rocky Mountains. And it was part of his fame. It was part of his presidential campaign years later that he had done this thing. And it's not even among the top 100 peaks uh, in the Rocky Mountains. Fake news or just uh, true, truthful hyperbole, I think is a phrase that that, uh, Donald (laughs) Trump once used in a in a book. But but Jesse understood that, understood how to promote that and also understood how to promote her own narrative and how to gradually create a public profile for herself in a time when women weren't really supposed to do well, that. Well, and how was it that she was able to carve that role out for herself? Or was it the fact that her, you know, her dad was quite, you know, famous and uh, and very well known in his own right? Uh, Th- that was the start. And the start was uh, how she was attached to her father who had wanted her to be a son and gave her his father's name. And when she was very young, educated her really well in a way that you would associate with boys in this era being educated. Uh, There was a later time in her teens when he said, no, actually, it's time to be a woman now. You can't pretend to be a man and just be my assistant, which is what she wanted to do. But she continued to assist him and married this man who assisted his big ambitions for the American West. And she gradually became known as a fixture and a force in her own right in Washington who would show up at the White House at receptions and talk in different languages with ambassadors and write letters defending her husband that would happen to be published in the newspaper. Just happened to be. Just happened to be. And she was herself corresponding with newspaper editors who had been her father's friends and allies, and they became her friends and allies, and becoming, in many respects, her husband's publicist while he was out exploring the West. So... One of the, I mean, you kind of glossed over this, but really cruxes of, I think, Fremont's influence on us today in California was his role in in essentially taking California for the United States, Um, not necessarily with the blessing of the president, although it's uh, it's a little unclear, right? there, There are murky parts of this story even today. But the facts that are known is that in the winter of 1845-46, John C. Fremont rode into uh, Mexican-controlled California over the Sierra Nevada with about 60 heavily armed gunmen. And 
gradually came into conflict with the Mexican authorities, which was part of a series of events or triggered a series of events in which California settlers, American settlers who'd come to California, rose up against the government. Fremont eventually joined them more and more explicitly. And finally, U.S. Navy forces off the coast heard of this action inland, thought that the war with Mexico must have begun because it was everybody knew a war was coming, and they went ahead and took over the ports, and suddenly the U.S. flag was up in California. What a difference. No Twitter then, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 1850, California becomes a state, and there's a big debate over whether we're going to become a free state or a slave state. Talk yeah. about Fremont's role in all of that. John C. Fremont uh, was not directly involved in the, convention, in the convention over whether it would be a free or slave state, but Jesse said she was that she lobbied in a kind of gentle or womanly way. And I'm just telling you there were certain gender roles at the time. I'm not endorsing them now, needless to say. (laughs) But she was trying in a way that was considered appropriate for women to have these members of the Constitutional Convention in Monterey, California, over to her house and talking with them about slavery. And uh, California did end up passing a constitution that banned slavery. Now, there were multiple reasons for that. They wanted to become a, a state, period. Uh, they knew they had to resolve that question one way or the other in order to become a state. This was the way they decided to do it. And frankly, uh, there were even a lot of racists, white racists, who were against slavery because they didn't want to be competing against white men with slaves in the gold fields. It's the middle of the gold rush, of course. So that what you're talking about there really underscores to me one of the great tensions of the Fremont's life and really of this time in America, which was the contradictions over race and Native American rights and slavery and and who was on what side. And I, in just this summer when my husband and I were just sort of reading Wikipedia entries and trying to piece some of this together as we drove through California, just was so fascinated by, on the one hand, Fremont on his expeditions slaughtered Indians, um, went, you know, basically to war with Native tribes. Um, He also had members of his expedition that were both at least part black and Native American. Yeah. Um, she was a huge, uh, eventually, you know, spoke against slavery and, and, and you know, they he was the first presidential candidate on the Republican ticket. I mean, talk about how do you square this sort of conflicting points of view around race and slavery. Race is an incredibly complex subject, to say the least. And John C. Fremont embodies a lot of those contradictions. Uh Another thing that's really complex is national identity. Who gets to be an American? And you can see in John's writings pride about the diversity of his expeditions. He'd go to St. Louis, Missouri. He'd hire a bunch of civilians to uh, serve under him as an army officer, and he would uh, be proud that there would be Frenchmen there who'd been, whose families had been there since French colonial times. And he'd hired a German immigrant map maker. And he would have an African-American with him who was the son of free black servants from the Benton House. And there would be Indians he would hire for the expedition. And multiple languages could be spoken around his campfires. How much of that and was he, like sort of political expedience and image? I, and well, you know, I, th- I think it's something he was genuinely proud of. He was genuinely proud of the diversity, even though the very same writing will have explicitly racist descriptions of people. And he had this very patronizing view of Indians, for example. Um, So I don't want to suggest that he was 
anything we would define as progressive today or, or entirely fair-minded today, but he understood the diversity of the country. At the same time, it was this strange moment, and you can see it in his writing, in which the word American, for many people, did not mean people who live in America or United States citizens even. It meant a particular group of white people descended mostly from Britain who were becoming a kind of new race of people. And even John Fremont wrote about Americans that way, even as he celebrated the diversity of the country. And some of those issues, like who should be counted in the census, you know, issues that we're, yeah. we're talking about today were very much alive oh, back the then. I mean, you, the book really underscores how much both slavery and that institution, but also this question of who should get to vote, who's yeah. a citizen, who gets rights to gold. Yes. It, it really underpins like every our structure that we're still living with 150 years, 200 years later. I discovered this story in John Fremont's life from 1850 when he became one of the first two California senators. I wrote about this, by the way, in the LA Times. You could go find it if you want <laughs> to. Uh, that was a little plug for, for the article. Thank you very much. Um, but he is proposing new laws to apply to this rapidly growing brand new state with all these gold fields. And one of the proposals was that uh, the gold prospecting should be regulated and that permits for mining should be sold only to United States citizens. And it became clear in the Senate debate, really explicit in the Senate debate, that wasn't really about citizenship. It was about keeping Mexicans from getting a share of anything. It was about keeping Chinese people from getting a share of anything. Um, and there was a debate back and forth. And ultimately, they decided for various reasons we could discuss that European immigrants were OK. And maybe they'd have a little exception for Europeans of good character. Especially from Norway. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so just, just to name a country, but they just really didn't like the Mexicans. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today, as you might, if you're sitting there wondering, God, that guy sounds familiar. It's NPR's Steve Inskeep. His new book is titled Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Map the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. Let me ask you about that title, Imperfect Union. Mm -hmm. Play on words there? Yeah, sort of like Political Breakdown. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's more than one meaning. Yes, I'm thinking about the uh, divide in America, in the American Union at that time, between the North and the South, the free states and slave states, and also thinking about this marriage, which is a remarkable marriage, but was plainly also a difficult marriage in many ways. And a well, go back to the beginning. Tell people how they came oh, to be married. Oh, absolutely. She was quite young. Uh, she was quite young. Uh, there are really a lot of younger women marrying older men in this book. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's just the way that things were happening. <laughs> they didn't live that long and in, she in was their pretty defense. put off by it uh, she uh, was uh, in other people's case. Yes, absolutely. She um, went... She she attended, was a bridesmaid at a society wedding for one of her teenage classmates. So she's like about 16. And one of her classmates, who's also a teenager, is married off to the 40-something ambassador to Russia. And so you have all these teenage bridesmaids and all of these very prominent, much older like men diplomat. as groomsmen. <laughs> she, uh, at age 16, is on the arm of a groomsman, Senator James Buchanan of Pennsylvania, who's like 45 or whatever. Bachelor. Uh, bachelor. Bat uh, Forever. we talk about that for a good bit. But she was just grossed out by the whole thing. And that was the occasion on which she cut off her hair and went to her father and said, I want to check out of Washington society and just be your assistant. That didn't work out. But she later met this penniless United States Army lieutenant who was at that time involved in expeditions through the West 
And so it come to the attention of her father, the senator, who was interested in the West. And John was kind of inserting himself into the Benton family, seems to have asked Jesse's older sister out on a date. And then either he was more interested in Jesse or Jesse was much more interested in him. And they got together. And the imperfect nature of their union is what? They were in many ways good for each other. Uh, and she clearly helped him to go much farther in life than he would have otherwise. But you think about the difficulty of their marriage. The basic condition of their marriage was that Jesse was at home and John was going away for months or years at a time. And part of that was the nature of his work. And many of us have jobs that require us to travel. I have to travel for my job. I'm traveling now, and I feel constantly guilty about leaving my family behind and try to balance that in different ways. And there are people who travel much longer periods than I do, soldiers, sailors. We could go on and on. Um, there's something really honorable about that and dealing with that challenge. He had that challenge but seems to have gone even a little farther than he needed to, went on a few more expeditions than he needed to, went away from home because he just couldn't kind of stay at home. And she compared herself ultimately to the wives of Nantucket whaling captains, mm. uh, the captains of whaling ships that would go away for two or three years at a time, and maybe maybe the husband would come back sometime. Maybe you'd just never see him she again. She did make it out here. She did. Twice, <clears throat> right? She did make it out here a number of times in her life and, in fact, ended her life in California, died in Los Angeles in 1902. She lived into the 20th century. Uh, And she would try to accompany him when possible on his expeditions out as far as the frontier, which was then Kansas City or so. And, yes, on one occasion in 1848-49, while he was conducting an extraordinarily perilous and deadly expedition across the Rocky Mountains in the winter, she took another route by ship and across Panama, the Isthmus of Panama, and up a ship the other way to try to meet him in San Francisco. Talk about her role in the presidential race, um, which came after some of the other things we've talked about. Yes. He had served as a senator. He had been court-martialed at one point. but Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> uh, but the main thing that he had done that made him qualified, quote-unquote, for the presidency was that he was super famous and considered a great hero and a guy who must have great judgment because he'd done all of these brilliant expeditions. Although when you look closely at the expeditions, you understand how erratic he truly was. In any case, the Republicans had created this new party, an anti-slavery party. They wanted uh, an inoffensive but heroic candidate to pull the party together, and he was the guy that they nominated. And part of the process of that happening involved Jesse. Jesse was friends with this guy, Francis Preston Blair, who was a newspaper man and counselor to presidents who became a kind of mastermind of the campaign. She drew him in. There's a letter in which she says, I'm sending John to you for advice on a very important matter we're considering, which turned out to be whether he was going to run for president or not. Um, And once the campaign started, there was a handful of men and one woman who met daily to deal with the correspondence of the campaign and discuss strategic matters of the campaign. And in fact, in Jesse's telling, she and these other men would be discussing a lot of matters of note while she screened his newspapers because she did not think he could take the horrible things that were being said about him. And he would just try to pass the time by getting a guy to be a fencing partner, and he would be fencing in the hall of their New York City home. So he runs in 1856, loses to James Buchanan, the bachelor. Yes. Uh, And then, of course, Abe Lincoln gets elected in 1860. And then Fremont challenges him, I think, in 1864. That's exactly right. Uh, Fremont was 
a predecessor to Lincoln, Republicans had realized that the North had grown in population far much more than the South, and there was an opportunity for an anti-slavery party that might win the presidency without Southern votes at all. They tried it, didn't quite work, but it was the very thing Lincoln was able to do four years later. Fremont was a pathfinder, to use a word that, was descri- uh, that described him sometimes, for Abraham Lincoln, but then quarreled with Lincoln during the war, and yes, in 1864, he allowed himself to be put forward as a radical Republican alternative to Abraham Lincoln, who was, quote, screwing up the war, unquote. And here was the truly anti-slavery guy who was going to fix things. I think he lasted until about September of 1864 and, and went away. But he made a lot of people mad, which I think is an, yet another reason that he is less well-remembered today. It's just the, the, this constant conflict with Lincoln. The and other thing, though, that, that makes him less well-remembered is just his involvement in these dark and complex events that we're not always sure what we think about Manifest Destiny. Yeah. And he died, like, pretty poor, right? Yes. he uh, Having made a fortune in the gold rush in 1849, he blew his fortune in railroads in the 1870s during the Gilded Age. Um, it was a really bad break for the Fremonts, but in a way a good break for us as students of history because one of the ways that they made a living in their later years was that his wife, Jessie Benton Fremont, began writing under her own name. Having helped him write so much, she wrote her own magazine articles and memoirs, uh, books and so forth, and it was very often her perspective on their earlier lives, and that's one of the things that makes it possible for me to write about her. There's so many of her own words that give her own views of certain events. Just about a minute and a half left. But, uh, you know, thinking about all this research, and by the way, did you take time off? There's so much research packed into this book. Thank you. Several short leaves, uh, (laughs) thanks to NPR, like a few weeks at a time. What parallels do you see with today, or what lessons do you see? One big parallel is that this period, the 1840s and 50s, was a time of big demographic change, and that was destabilizing. It made people fear they were going to lose power forever. And people in the South, slave owners in the South, did not want to be out of power forever. And it's part of the reason the Civil War happened. That's why I say they helped cause the Civil War. The Fremonts did. We live today in a period of great demographic change where there are people in one party who feel that demographically they're on the losing end and they fear being shut out of power forever, where Democrats confidently think that demographics are on their side, but fear they'll be shut out of power by conservative judges who are being appointed now, and that points toward a really, really tense election year because you have people on both sides of this divide who, for different reasons, not identical reasons, fear not just losing an election but losing everything. The book is titled Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. Steve Inskeep, thanks so much for coming in and for all you do at NPR. We, we really appreciate your coming in. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for what you do at KQED, which makes anything we do possible. <laughs> That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producers, Guy Marzarati, our engineers are Jacob Winnick and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can always find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. I will find you. And I'm Scott Schaefer. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 